You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. makes you holy and there's a change in your life because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. There's a difference in your life from now and the way you were before. There's a difference and people can see that difference. People see that difference and say, must be the Lord. I love this, Micah 6, 8, one of my most favorite verses of all. Micah the prophet wrote in chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. What a beautiful verse. What a great way for us to look at the way we should walk. When you leave your past behind and begin a new life as a follower of Jesus, He transforms your heart. Jesus will change you from the inside out, and as Pastor Dave shares today, people are going to notice. They'll see you seeking to do what Jesus asks, and they'll notice the shift in your attitude and lifestyle. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 10 as he continues his message, Peter's Proclamation. You are Peter is connecting the dots, and this is happening, and then he moves here, and this happens, and then he moves here, and everything is being confirmed to him, and everything is being confirmed, and all of a sudden, he's connected all the dots, and he's going, hey, woo I connected all the dots. I know what God wants to say. I know what God's telling me right now. He has connected all the dots, and the picture is beautiful in front of him. He had connected them, and he sees the Lord through the spiritual eyes that the Lord has given him. God shows no partiality. But he said this To Cornelius in verse 28. He said this by himself to Cornelius, and now he's going to proclaim it to anybody who would hear. What was once said in secret, he now proclaims at the top of his voice. Interesting thing here is that this is not a new concept. This is not like something that God just decided to do. This is not something that God... Spare with me a minute. Let me read you Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. See if you pick up the same thing that I got. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This is not a new concept. This is where the Lord wanted it all along. This was concept that man had made. The religious leaders got together and said, put themselves on a pedestal and said, we're better than you because God speaks to our people and doesn't speak to you. Therefore, you're just nothing but dogs. They've placed themselves on some pedestal and saying, hey, there's a little esoteric club. You want to join that? You can't. Sorry. This was not God's plan. It says God shows no partiality. It's interesting that in verse 16 of this same passage, The Lord tells the Israelites to circumcise their hearts and not to be stiff-necked. He says, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stiff-necked to what you're thinking. Don't be rigid in your thinking. I love this. One of the commentators said this. We often think God sees color. He only sees the heart. 
God does not see economic status. He only sees the heart. God doesn't see nationalities or ethnic groups. He only sees the heart. And then, of course, you have to go to 1 Samuel 16, 7. When Samuel is looking at David, this little ruddy guy who does nothing but tend sheep, he got the father to bring out all the men. Jesse brought out all his sons, all these glorious sons stood before him. They were all strapping, broad young men stood there. And he went, no, no, down the line. And he says, don't you have another? Uh, a little runt in the backyard, a little guy back there keeping sheep, but uh, you don't want him. Now, nah, bring him forth. Bring him forth. He's the one I want to look at. The Lord said to Samuel in Samuel 16, 7, do not look at his appearance or his physical statue, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. He says, don't look at these guys at their physical appearance. They're not the ones I want. I want the little guy back there. I want the runt. I want the one that nobody looks at, that nobody overlooks, because I see his heart. I see the heart. There is nobody else in the Bible that God says, he was a man after my own heart. Only David did he say that of. Only David. I want to be a man after God's heart. I want to be known as a man who's after God's own heart. God's not interested in our appearances. He's not interested in our nationality. He's not interested in our economics. Thank you. He's not interested in anything that we do. He's interested in what our heart is saying, what our heart is. Is our heart open to him? That's what he's interested in here. Man looks on the outward appearances. The Lord looks upon the heart. In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Christianity was the very first religion to disregard racial, cultural, and nationality limits. Christianity puts it away. Ends it. It's funny, but the Emancipation Proclamation basically validated what Jesus did 1,800 years before. Set men free. Jesus set men free. Seeing Man has a way of validating Christ's work. Yeah, okay. Peter said, he who fears the Lord, this is a reverent fear. Standing in awe of the one who created you. Standing in the one who loved you so much, who sent his son to die for you. This is a reverent fear. I have a reverent fear. You know what my main fear of the Lord is? I fear that I will turn away from him. I fear that I will hurt him in some way. I feel that I will misrepresent him. I have this fear of the Lord. It's a reverent, holy fear. It's It's an awesome look at him. But Peter had a point when he said every nation who ever fears him and works righteousness is is accepted on. He's not implying that men like Cornelius were already right with God. That's not his applying. He's not applying that they don't need to be Christians. Instead, the point here is that they shouldn't feel excluded from God. No one is excluded from God's love because of their national background. No one is excluded. God doesn't exclude anyone. And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't set limits on who can join us and who cannot. We shouldn't set limits on who can accept the Lord and who can't. It's not ours to give. The works of righteousness, Peter's talk about, is believing and accepting by faith Jesus Christ's sacrifice. This is the work of righteousness. Titus writes, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, he writes. It's not by our righteous works. I'm never going to get into my own righteousness. Isaiah calls my righteousness filthy rags. I'm not going to get in on my works. Well, that makes two out. I'm not going to get on my looks. I'm not going to get on my works. What else can I do? 
Oh, I can accept Jesus Christ. You're in. Okay. Let's make it easy. I mean, what would be a sermon without a quote from Warren Wiersbe? He describes that this is what the Christian life looks like. Warren Wiersbe said, this is what the Christian life looks like. Fear God and work righteousness. He says, to fear God is to reverence and trust in him. And the evidence of the faith that you have is the righteous life. In other words, you become holy. God makes you holy, and there's a change in your life because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. There's a difference in your life from now and the way you were before. There's a difference, and people can see that difference. People see that difference and say, must be the Lord. I love this, Micah 6, 8, one of my most favorite verses of all. Micah the prophet wrote in chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. What a beautiful verse. What a great way for us to look at the way we should walk. Oh, we've said this before. I love mercy when it's coming to me. I think mercy is great when you're dumping it on me. Yeah, a little iffy when I have to dump it on you. <laughs> but, I, you know, he says to, to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly before your God. So in these first two verses, we've seen preparation and we've seen perception with this proclamation. The next thing we see in this proclamation is preaching, and that takes care of the rest, 36 through 43. However, we have a couple more. Let me read that. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, the word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus in Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who drank and ate with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Peter's proclamation contained preaching. Peter preached to them the gospel, what we know as the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Preaching simply means to discourse on the gospel way of salvation and to exhort to repentance. Preaching is simply a a dissertation on evangelical truths and to extort to the belief in them and the acceptance of the terms of salvation. What are the terms of salvation? Accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the terms of salvation given forth by God. Peter explains the gospel to Cornelius and his friends. What Peter is saying is very, very similar to what he said in Acts 2. It's very, very similar to what he said when he was arrested by the Sanhedrin. The gospel, why? Because the gospel doesn't change. He didn't have to pump it up with flowery words and different like that. You just say the gospel. It's a very, very simple thing to say. It's the gospel. It doesn't change. He didn't water it down. He didn't make it puffed up. He didn't do it, but he repeated the gospel message. So many times in the world today, we hear what I like to call the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. It's a watery-down version of the gospel. It doesn't mention repentance. doesn't mention hell. doesn't mention the remission of sins. It's just a watered-down version. We're all going to be very happy. Yeah, let's sing kumbaya. We'll be great. It's motivational stuff. The gospel leads to repentance. Why does the gospel lead to repentance? Because it's the power of God to salvation. It's the power of God. Paul said it quite clearly in Romans 1, 16. You can repeat it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the power in it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Greek. 
this is what we preach. A simple message of hope. But there's power in it to change your life. Power in it to give you purpose and to give you meaning in a life that you want to live. The gospel contains God's power. In those words of the gospel message contained the power to change someone from death to life. God's gospel that he created through Jesus Christ. The gospel message. Only God can save and only God can grant salvation. Only God can create life. And this is one thing that the devil hates because he cannot create life. God can. And he can take what was dead and make it alive. I'm living proof. For I was dead in my sin and God made me alive in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about the word that was sent. We know this to be Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living word. He's the logos. He's the word of God that God sent to the nation of Israel preaching peace. According to John's gospel, Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to break down the walls of separation. Jesus is our peace. Peter says, you know this, Cornelius. You've been studying. You've been looking. You know this. You've seen this. He accuses them that they should know it. See, the story of Jesus wasn't something that was hid. Everybody in Judea, everybody in Jerusalem knew the story of Jesus Christ. They saw it. They watched it unfold before their eyes. They saw the miracles. They saw people getting healed. They saw the, the arrest. They watched them being drawn through the town with a cross. They saw it. They knew it. It wasn't something that was hidden, something that was just covered up. They saw this out loud. Peter says, you know this because you saw it with your own eyes. And you saw him die on a cross. And he uses a term, hanged on a tree. It's interesting that he uses this because this was a Roman way to die. This was a Gentile way to die. Had the Jews killed him, they would have stoned him. Because that was the penalty for blasphemy. Death by stoning. This was a Gentile way to die. Peter used this phrase to say there's no anti-Semitism here. All men are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. All men are guilty. Paul wrote it better than I could ever say it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All men are guilty of Christ's death. It was all sin that was heaped upon him, past, present, and future. All of our sins. We can't blame one particular people. We all did it. Peter says it wasn't done in secret but open, and you should know it. Peter proclaims the gospel message to those who are gathered at Cornelius' house. What a wonderful time that must have been. The proclamation had preparation. It had perception. It had preaching. But it also shows privilege. It shows privilege. In verse 39, Peter declares that he was a witness of all that Jesus did. And in verse 41, he says that he was chosen also by God to see Christ after the resurrection. That's privilege. Do you realize what we have in Jesus Christ? Do you realize the privilege that we've been given by the death of Jesus Christ, by the gospel message? There are privileges there. Many, many privileges for all to see. When you start to look at them, you can't count them up. They're mind-boggling. Peter is saying, I was privileged to see him. I was privileged to walk with him, to eat with him. I was privileged to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was privileged. He gave me the keys to the kingdom. I was privileged to know him. But I want to recall the words that Jesus said to Thomas at the end of the book of John in chapter 20. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. The Greek word here used for blessed carries a meaning of extremely or supremely blessed. It carries the meaning that we are extremely 
blessed. What privileges do we have? Think about the privileges that you have in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, the guide, the helper. We're not orphans. We have been given access to the throne room of God. The throne room itself, we can come boldly in and ask. He calls us children. He calls us his kids. All rights and privileges that go with it. We have peace with God. And we can have the peace of God. We have an advocate with the Father. The list goes on and on and on and on. And oh my goodness, all this and salvation too? Eternal life? I can't stand it. You think about it, your mind wants to explode of all these wonderful things we have. Now, if this doesn't cause your heart to joy, I'm helpless there, Ben. If you can't get joy out of this, then you're on your own on that one. Man, what we have. So Peter's proclamation contained preparation, it contained perception, and it contained preaching, and it contained privilege. And finally, this proclamation contained prophecy. Prophecy. Bringing forth the word of God. Peter's proclamation is prophetic. Look again at verse 43. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will have remission of sins. All the prophets witnesses. Every prophet foretold of a Messiah that would come. And Jesus said, and the volume of the book is written about me. I'm the one that they foretold of. He's on every page. He's in every story. The Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. He was prophesied throughout scriptures. Israel was held accountable for his coming, and they failed miserably because they failed to recognize it was him. They were held accountable. They missed it. They rejected him, and they still do. But he's coming again. He is coming a second time. We have this book. We call it the Bible. Will we be held accountable for his second coming? Are we going to be held accountable to know when his second coming is? Well, we're not to know the hour or the time, Dave. You're right. But he certainly tells us about signs that are happening and things we should look for. Do you live your life like Christ is coming back today? Is that how your life is lived? Because that's what this Bible says we should do. We should live it as if he's coming this very moment. At 11.10. January 22nd, I didn't hear a trumpet. In the twinkling of an eye, the trump will sound. Boom, we'll be gone. We'll be with him forever. He's coming again. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Do you live your life like these are the last days? Is there an urgency to the message that you take to your friends and your family? Is there an urgency that says Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life? Are you worried that when that trumpet sounds, they'll still be here? The prophets foretold that through his name, whoever believes in his name will have remission of sins. And this might be the biggest privilege of all, as I said, remissions of sin. We've been released from a debt we couldn't pay. We've been released from a penalty that we deserve. We've been released from the binding power of a law which we could not uphold. We've been pardoned. Our sins are forgiven. They've been wiped away as if they never existed. You know, every year, at the end of the year, the president sits there and he signs so many presidential pardons. And again, it's a proclamation. A proclamation that says, such and such has been pardoned, and you are now set free. Christ has set us free. The best proclamation that would ever existed was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have been set free. Free at last. 1 John 5, 1. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that believes him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So you say, oh, I love Jesus. He's the Messiah, and I'm born again, and oh, I love him. Well, if you love him, 
who has begotten you in this new life, then you're supposed to love others who have been begotten in this new life. Do you love the others? Is that love that you have for Christ when you say, I love him, I love him, I love him? Do you demonstrate that by loving the body of Christ? Do you love others? Remember, he said, they'll know you by the love that you show one another. He says, everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him, who is begotten of him. Being born again has two effects. It's assumed that we'll love God because we're born into his family. But it's also assumed that we'll love, be love others who are also born in the family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the common ground of Christianity. It's not race. It's not class. It's not culture. It's not language. Nothing in common except the birth of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's our commonality. Love others in the family of God means that you do not limit your love to your own denomination, your own group, or your own social financial status, not your own race, not your own political perspective, or your own theological persuasions. It means that these things are more to you than common salvation. There's a problem. If the lordship of Jesus Christ isn't his most important thing, there's a problem. Many of you out there are parents. How hurt are you when your sons and your daughters argue with each other and tell each other that they hate each other? What do you think God feels like when we argue amongst ourselves? His children. Don't make me come down there. What do you think God feels like when we're arguing amongst ourselves? When the body of Christ splits, Christ bleeds, God cries. Peter finishes his recitation on the historical basis of the gospel message. He speaks Jesus' life. He speaks Jesus' death and resurrection. Then he announces the good news whosoever will may come, whosoever believes. He opens the door for everyone in the world, and I'm so glad he opened the door because he opened the door for us. He unlocked the keys of of the kingdom, and he opened the doors wide, and whomsoever. We're going to see that these hearers, these Gentiles, applied to whosoever to themselves, and they were saved. Jesus came, and he saved them. One commentator said said this, that Peter became the spokesperson for a great transition that was taking place from a program that once only included Jews, that one that would include Gentiles as well. It's interesting to me, and this is where we're going to close, that Peter finishes the sermon at the same point he began. In verse 34, he said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He ends it in 43 when it said, whoever believes will come. It's the same point. It's the same point. There's no partiality, so whomever believes can come. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring peace to you today. He came for the first time, not to bring judgment, to bring salvation. God makes that offer without prejudice. He excludes no group, no peoples from that offer. Whomsoever will be saved. But there's a warning. Jesus is coming the second time, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And at that time, it will be too late to take advantage of this offer. It'll be too late to take advantage of this gracious offer for the forgiveness of sin and fellowship with him for eternity, because the wrath of God will fall, and it also will be without prejudice. The wrath of God will fall on those that haven't accepted without prejudice. There'll be no excuses. There'll be no special exceptions, because the truth of it is... God chose no partiality. Although our time is coming to a close for the day, you don't have to stop studying God's Word. We encourage all our listeners to spend time daily in the Bible, learning from the timeless text that your Creator has given you. If you'd like to listen to more of Pastor Dave's teachings from this series in Acts or explore messages from other books of the Bible, you can do so by visiting AssureHopeRadio.com. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to have updated messages sent right to your computer or phone. If you'd like a CD copy of today's message, we'd be happy to send you one. Just give us a call at 609-884-5821. That's 609-884-5821. We're so blessed to be able to share God's Word with you with each new edition of Assure Hope. But we want to encourage you to find a local church to attend regularly as well. Being a part of the body of Christ gives you a place to learn and grow with other imperfect people while providing an outlet for your unique, God-given gifts. If you're in the Cape May area, we'd love to have you come by Calvary Chapel, Cape May. We meet each Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship and Bible study, and childcare is available. We're excited to have you join us. For more information and to get directions, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. That brings us to the end of our program for today. Thanks for tuning in to Pastor Dave's study in the book of Acts today. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Assure Hope.